amazing that is, that, that Paul could write that from a Philippian jail. I encourage you to take your scripture and open with me to the third chapter of John, which we will finish that chapter off, Lord willing, today. That's on page, well, we don't have the pages up there. Oh, yeah. 1650 of the Blue Pew Bible. Arturo Toscanini, the great conductor, once said this, It isn't so hard to find a virtuoso pianist or a violinist. There are always people who will seek the place of honor. But if you want great music, you have to find people who want to excel at playing second violin. Leonard Bernstein, the great director of the New York Philharmonic, agreed when asked which instrument was most difficult to play, he said this, without a doubt, second fiddle. I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's the problem. And that's the problem that some of John the Baptist's disciples had when they came to him in our text today. Look with me at verse 22. After this, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee in Capernaum, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Aon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. We've seen in the last couple chapters that Jesus' ministry has started. John has pointed to him as the Messiah. John said, that's him. First, a few Jews began to, to follow him. We saw that in the first chapter and the second chapter with Nathaniel and Philip and Peter and Andrew. And then more probably after the miracle in Cana, when he turned water into wine, that probably stirred up some people and they started following him. I'm sure he picked up some Jewish zealots after he, he cleared the temple of the money changers. I'm sure those passionate people started following Jesus. And here he moves out into the Judean countryside and the crowds begin to flock to him. And the disciples of John the Baptist notice that their ministry is being superseded by Jesus' ministry. They used to be the biggest ministry. They were the king of the Judean countryside. People came out to, to them to, to see John the Baptist. They were the megachurch. And now what they see are people leaving their ministry 
and going and following Jesus and being part of his ministry, and they don't like it. They don't like it. This isn't new. This happens with churches today. One of the biggest issues between pastors seems to be sometimes this, what's called sheep stealing. Where one pastor begins attracting sheep and the other pastor begins losing sheep. And the church that lost its members reacts many times like the disciples here. It happens in families when a new child is born, doesn't it? It's all wonderful when it first happens, you know, and the kids all are rejoicing. But wait a couple weeks or a couple months when that child, that small infant, begins getting the majority of the attention. What happens there? They have to learn to play second fiddle is what they have to do. It happens on pro football teams when a new franchise quarterback is drafted, isn't it? And the current starter is relegated to the secondary role, the second fiddle role really hard to once have the adulation of the crowds and now it's on to somebody else. Why is that? Why is it that most people don't like playing second fiddle? Why is it that most vice presidents dream of becoming president? Why is it that most warm-up bands are seeking to become the main attraction? Why is it that most theatrical understudies are there because Not because they want to be an understudy. It's because they want to be the star. Why is it that most assistant pastors dream of being senior pastors? Because it shows an underlying premise in our heart. An underlying premise in our heart. We have trouble playing second fiddle. We have trouble being number two. Now, I want to be careful. It's not wrong to be ambitious. It's not wrong. It's not sinful to want to excel. It's not wrong to want to be the best you can be. It's not, not bad at all. Not sinful at all. But we all have to recognize the logical fact that not everybody can be number one. It just can't happen. And when in your life... And in my life, that doesn't happen. How do you handle it? How do you handle it? Can you handle it? Can you play an enthusiastic second fiddle? Well, John's answer to his disciples helps us understand how exactly to do that. How do we humbly play an enthusiastic number two? And first, we have to see you have to know your role. You have to know your role. John's disciples complain that our ministry is diminishing. Don't you care? And look at John's answer, starting in verse 27. Don't you care that everyone is going to him? To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. You see, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the groom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. Now, why didn't John react like most of us would? 
Why didn't John react by, by joining in the complaint? Have you ever had that reaction? Yeah, yeah. How come? How come they're all going? Or how about some people react by tearing down the other ministry? Have you ever been known, heard that? Or even maybe your heart doing that as well? Or another reaction is, you know what? Let's get them back. What can we do to get them back? I know what we'll do. We'll take the pews out and put chairs in. We'll get a projector. And we'll do more contemporary music. Let's do whatever it costs to get them back. In other words, we try and hang on to first place, don't we? But John didn't do that. It was so natural for him to say what he just said. Why is that? Because he knew his role. He knew who he was and what he was supposed to do. He says a man can only receive what is given from, to him from heaven. He knew he was given the role of forerunner. He knew he was the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. I will send someone ahead of you to prepare the way. He knew that. He knew his role was preparatory. He also knew his role, and he tried to explain it to his disciples by by connecting to an image that they would know very well, the image of a bridegroom's friend. Did you see him talk about that? He said, listen, you want to know what my role is like? I'm like the friend of the bridegroom. Now, in the Jewish culture, the friend of the bridegroom, many times we call it the best man, but it doesn't fulfill the same role. 2,000 years ago in, in Jewish society, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, at the end of the wedding, would, would lead the bride to the bridal chamber. And that friend would then stand outside and wait for the bridegroom to come. And he would only open the door when the bridegroom came, when he heard his voice, when he heard him coming. His reaction was joy because he had completed what his role was to prepare for the two coming together. That was John's role, to prepare the bridegroom, Christ, for his people, us. And when Jesus came, John was overjoyed. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't resentful. He wasn't trying to hang on to the ministry. He wasn't saying, what can we do to get these people back because we were the megachurch and now we're not the megachurch. What can we do? He didn't try and tear down Jesus' ministry. He was overjoyed. Because his job was accomplished. John's role was a third party to bring Christ and his people together, and he knew it. And that's why he said, probably for the umpteenth time to his disciples, I'm guessing, because we have it multiple times in in the three, four Gospels. I am not the Christ. Let me say this again. I am not the Christ. I'm not the one. I'm not the bridegroom. And he knew he was not first violin. He knew he was second fiddle. 
And that allowed him to point and say, go. That allowed him to have joy in the success of Jesus' ministry at this time. He had the freedom to point and say, go. And that's why knowing your role, your role in the body of Christ is so important, people. What's your role? What's your God-given role in the body of Christ? We know from 1 Corinthians 12 that, that the Spirit gracefully gives you at least one spiritual gift for the purpose of the common good, it says, for the purpose of knowing your role and doing your role in the body of Christ. A God-given role to play here at Southwest Harbor Congregational, we encourage you fairly consistently to know your role. What has God gifted you to do? And praise God, do it here. Why? Because knowing your role, as C.S. Lewis puts it, allows you to play great parts with pride, without pride, and little parts with no shame. Doesn't C.S. Lewis have a wonderful way with a few words? It allows you to play great parts without pride and little parts without shame because that's the gift that God has given you to do. That's the role he has gifted you to do in this body. And that freedom of knowing your God-given role, it kills shame and resentments. It's like putting weed eater on them. It affords you to, the freedom to take joy in other roles that other people are doing, in lifting them up like John did. Look at what Millie is doing. Look at what you know, Bernie is doing. Oh, praise God what Mike is doing. Have you seen what, what Rachel's doing? Wow, how about that Tony? He's amazing. You're free to do that. Gives you the ability to play second fiddle with enthusiasm, and that only happens when you know your God given role. Like John. But playing second fiddle with enthusiasm also takes knowing the truth, knowing your role and knowing the truth. Look at verse 30 with me. He ends by saying this to his disciples He must become greater, I must become less. This really could have been part of the first point, but I really wanted to, to call this out and, and talk about this because it's so important. I think we as Christians need to know the inevitable truth of what this verse says in our own lives. In regards to the will of God, you must decrease, he must increase. In regards to the will of God, He must increase, and you must decrease. You must become less. We have to learn to play second fiddle to God's will in our lives. We have to learn that. John knew this. He knew it. He knew to turn the spotlight on to Christ, didn't he? He knew it was the will of God that he was the spirit of Elijah. He knew it was the will of God that his ministry was temporary and preparatory. We know from Scripture that his parents 
Zechariah and Elizabeth knew this. They were told this. This is the one who is going to prepare the way. Read Luke chapter 1. And they prepared him for this moment. Think about that. Think about that. Don't read the Bible in a vacuum. He had real parents that really built into him. And what they built into him, I'm sure, was, John, you're number two. John, you have to remember that at the moment, that critical moment, you have to become less. And your cousin Jesus has to become more. Because that's the truth. R.C. Sproul commenting on this verse said, The increase of Christ is not an option. Let this speak to you. The increase of Christ is not an option. It is necessary. That has to happen. It has to take place. I have to decrease. He must increase. Because that's the biblical pattern, isn't it? Of sanctification. That's what the Spirit is encouraging in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. For His will to increase and our will to decrease. That's the progression of Spirit-filled believers. We don't like to hear that, don't do we? That chafes against us. We fight against it. We kick against it. That's why we love movies where characters kind of break out of determined situations, don't we? I mean, we've talked over the years about the Truman Show, the ultimate. You know, we cheer for Truman when he breaks out, don't we? We just talked about The Matrix last week or the week before. We love that movie because he breaks out of this fatalistic, deterministic, somebody else's will over his will. We celebrate that and we cheer for that. In the movie The Adjustment Bureau... Congressman David Norris, that's played by Matt Damon, learns that fate, i.e. the Adjustment Bureau, fate, has determined that his relationship with the only woman he has ever really loved must be ended because it's not part of the determined plan for his life. And what the movie is about is him breaking out of that determined plan. And we cheer for it. And when it happens at the end, we go, yes! Because we love, what we're really doing is celebrating how, what our, all our hearts are really like. Not his will over mine. It's my will over his. And we love those storylines. But scripture says, believer, you must Decrease, and he must increase. Jesus said it this way in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know it well. Not my will, but thine be done. He was struggling with it. The will of God in his full humanity. He wanted to break out too. The progression of a spirit-filled person is always more of God's will and less of mine because your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. 
Zach Levi put it well in an interview. Uh, Levi was the star of the NBC comedy Chuck. I don't know if you know that, that show. But he's a Christian. He said this, The key is to remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit in whatever you say and do. To me, it's not rocket science. I love that. To me, it's not rocket science. Go about your day putting your faith in God and standing on truth. It's pretty easy. And he ends by saying, your life is God's. So let him do as he wills with it. People, it's not rocket science. It's that simple. Do you want to play second fiddle to God and God's will enthusiastically? I think we would all kind of shake our heads yes. Well, it's not rocket science. Realize that your life, although you think deep down it's yours, as a believer, it's not. It's not your life. It's not your life anymore. Tell yourself that when you wake up in the morning. It's not my life. Remind yourself throughout the day. It's not my life. When you feel God's will pushing you in a direction that you don't want to go, just say, it's not my life. It's not my life. Let him do what he wills with it. You must decrease. He must increase. Thirdly, to play second fiddle with enthusiasm, you have to know whom you serve. You have to know whom you serve. And this is what John is telling his disciples in verses 31 through 35. He tells them this, trying to help them to understand whom he serves. He says, the one whom come, who comes from above is above all. He's talking about Jesus here. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth. He's talking about himself and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. To play second fiddle well in an orchestra, you have to know that the violinist sitting in the first seat is better than you. (laughs) You have to know that. You have to know that person is better than me. That person is higher than me on the scale. And that's exactly what John is telling his disciples. Look at how he describes him in the text. First of all, earlier he used the image of bridegroom, which was, you know, would explode in the, the Jewish mind as he was saying that. Then he, would go, he goes on to describe Jesus as coming from above, as God sent, as speaking the words of God, of God giving him the spirit without limit, of the son the father loves. And of having placed everything in his hands. Placed everything in Jesus' hands. John knew exactly who he was playing second fiddle with in the Judean countryside, guys. It was God incarnate. 
Jesus Christ, come from God. And it gives him the freedom to say, you know, you guys, I'm not rebuilding my ministry. I'm not taking out the pews and putting in chairs. Go and follow him. Go. Gives him the freedom to say, you know, if you're looking for a rally here, let me tell you very, very, very clearly, I must decrease. He must increase. Gives him the enthusiasm to play a glorious second fiddle. Because it's for God's glory. That's what he's talking about here. It's not for his glory. It's for God's glory. And when we, be, when we begin to understand this principle, guys, when this principle begins taking root in our hearts, in, in our minds, and in our lives, it gives us the freedom to serve in the role that God has given you here. It gives you the freedom to point, as we did earlier, to brothers and sisters in lifting them up and encouraging them instead of worrying about your own reputation and your own fiefdom. It gives you the freedom from your own ego, guys. We could apply this to many, many areas of our life, but I want to apply it to two areas in specific. The first area is in the husband-wife relationship. The scripture calls for a wife to submit to the husband. And for the husband to be a servant leader. That's Ephesians 5, right there. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Problem is, wives many times don't like submitting. Don't want to submit. See it as demeaning as lower than. And husbands, many times, we use our role in an oppressive manner, in a tyrannical manner, instead of serving. Why? Why do we do that? Why is it that neither of us like to play the second fiddle? Because neither keep in mind who they are actually serving. We don't. Because neither of us keep in mind that our marriage is to glorify God. That's the purpose of our marriage. And not for our own petty egos. Wives, submission is difficult if you keep believing that your husband Submission is difficult if you only keep in mind your husband, not God. Submission is difficult if you only keep in mind your husband and not God. And husbands, servant leadership, giving up your prerogative, giving up what you want to do, is difficult if you only have your wife in mind and not God. You see, dysfunction occurs when you don't realize that you're playing second fiddle to God and not your spouse. God himself. Your relationship is primarily, again, to give God glory. And when you do, 
When you realize that, that you're playing second fiddle to God and not your spouse, it gives the wife freedom to play second fiddle to her husband enthusiastically and with joy, lifting him up. Being a Proverbs 31 where, where, the, where the husband is known and is lifted up at the gates. Because, why? Because you are doing that. Because you have the freedom to. And it gives the husband freedom to play second fiddle to his wife enthusiastically and with joy. Thinking of her first and not yourself. What is best for her, not me? Even though that answer is difficult many times. Second application. Church is working together. Church is working together. I'll be brief on this. Why don't gospel churches work more closely together? Why isn't that more common? Why isn't something like T4G, Together for the Gospel, why is that an anomaly? Why do we go, wow, that's amazing that, that people from different churches and different denominations that love Christ are together and, and have a common goal? Why is that an anomaly and not the norm? Because we all want to be number one. Because no one wants to play second fiddle to another church. Do you know why I love and respect Dan Venable so much? He's the pastor over at Cornerstone Church. Because he gets this. He really gets this. And his people are getting it more and more. He realizes that we're all working towards building the common goal of God's kingdom. He gets it. He realizes more than most of us that his role is second fiddle. How wonderful is that? He realizes that he is playing second fiddle to, fiddle to God and not to the High Road Church and not to Church of Our Father and not to First Baptist Church over in Bar Harbor. He gets it. That's what gives him the, the, the freedom and joy in supporting the Alpha effort here. That's what gives him the freedom and the joy to bring his boxes over, over here, this Operation Christmas Child boxes. He called me up. That's what gives him the freedom to recommend families that come to him in his church, recommending that they come here because of our youth group. Amazing. He gets it more than most. He's playing second fiddle to God. Lastly, playing second fiddle enthusiastically. You have to know you've been served. You have to know you've been served. Look at verse 36 with me. In ending, John says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Look at the word remains. 
It's a good word to underline. Some of your Bibles have the word abides in there. What John is doing is he's reminding us what Jesus has done for us. To the degree that you realize how Christ has served you in salvation is the degree of joy and freedom you will have in playing second fiddle anywhere. To the degree that you realize what Christ has done for you, how he has served you in salvation, that's the degree to which your joy and your freedom of playing any role, however demeaning, playing that role enthusiastically. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. You know how most people interpret that when they read it in their devotions? They think of it in the terms of Philippians 4.4 type peace. Oh, just a, an overwhelming feeling of peace. You know, serenity. Calm. That peace that transcends all understanding. That's not the peace that is meant here, guys. It's the opposite of war kind of peace. You now have peace, not war with God. David wrote in Psalm 51, telling us how sinful we were from birth. See, the Bible does not speak of us as friends, naturally. Do you realize that? The Bible doesn't even talk of us as frenemies, as some girls are prone to say. The Bible talks of us in our natural condition as enemies of God. Enemies. The basic premise of the Bible is that God hates sin. And we are naturally born sinners. We're naturally enemies of God. And what this verse is saying is, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that wrath remains on you. And for most of us, that doesn't make such an impact. But I'd love to just take a snippet from Jonathan Edwards here and and help us to understand what Christ has done for us to help us understand our dangerous position before an angry God at sin. Jonathan Edwards talked about it as a burning like fire. He preached, God looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. O sinner, Consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as such against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. That's the position of every person born in this world naturally. 
enemies of God, with the wrath of God remaining on them, unless something is done. Unless something is done. It is said of playing second fiddle in the orchestra, it takes quite a person to play second fiddle. He must know himself. He must be willing to lose himself in the task. And people, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he served us. He lost himself in the task of serving us in salvation. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, we read in Matthew 20. Jesus lost himself in that task. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who had no sin became sin. He who was first became last. He who was God became the despised of God. He deemed to play second fiddle for us in salvation. Jesus lost himself in his task and gave himself as a ransom for our sin. He willingly played second fiddle on the cross for us. So my question is two. Do you put your name there? Do you know you've been served that way? Do you know that Jesus Christ has served you in that way? If you don't, verse 36 gives you hope. It says, turn and believe in Jesus. That he lived the life you couldn't. That he absorbed the wrath of God on the cross and took your penalty by dying on the cross. And in that great transaction, he gave you and clothed you in the righteousness that he so deserved. And then he rose three days later to give himself life and those who believe in him life. Do you know you've been served that way? If you don't, turn and believe and have eternal life. Secondly, if you believe already, the more you understand that Christ has served you in this way in salvation, the more you understand that at a heart and a mind level, the more it frees you in this life to play second fiddle. To not have the positions and have it pridefully warped and not to have the service positions and have shame leak in. You can play second fiddle with joy and enthusiasm. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you will apply it to our lives, Spirit. That is your job. In Jesus' name, amen.